You are listening to the UFO Talker Podcast. Come with us as we explore UFOs from the past and the present. With insightful discussions, interviews, and reviews, we will add our voice to the mysteries that have been seen in our skies and oceans for all of human history. Now, here's our host, Michael Ryan. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 18 from Studio 7H here in Ontario, Canada. On today's episode, I have an interview with Preston Dennett, and we cover a lot of interesting topics and also his most recent book, Humanoids and High Strangeness, 20 True UFO Encounters. And this is the first show of 2024. Here we are. 2024, it feels like we're in the future now. I remember being a kid and, uh, you know, sitting around with your friends and we would all be saying, how old will we be in the year 2000? And we were all figuring that out. And 2000 was like, wow, that is, you know, they'll flying cars and you won't eat food anymore. It'll come in a pill form and, and all of these other things that were all predicted, but very few came true. I don't think much has changed <laughs> since then, but there is a lot happening in the world of UFOs. And in a coming episode, we're going to have our 2024 predictions about what will be talked about and the people to watch. But that will be coming in a week or two. On this show, we have our audio excerpt that we'll be reading today it comes from Linda Zimmerman's book, Hudson Valley UFOs, which is a very interesting topic and also a very good book to read. So stay tuned for that at the end of this episode. But now we're going to get to our small town shout out. And this week it is Ennis, Texas, which has a population of 21,210 people. And it is 35 miles south of Dallas. And we've done a few uh, towns from uh, small towns from Texas and they're all really nice. They all have a really great architecture and they all look like wonderful places to live and Ennis is no different I mean it's got the giant you know water tower in 2013 uh, Ennis had a bad tornado come through town and it wrecked most of the uh, historic buildings on Main Street but a few years ago they had a revival and they invested heavily and they have reinvigorated Main Street and it does look fantastic that is for sure the Welcome Center is on Main Street. That's a great-looking uh, building. Also, uh, the area is known for blue bonnet flowers, which have a fantastic blue color, and I'm told they have a, a very great uh, fragrance to them as well. And they actually have a blue bonnet festival, which is the third weekend of April. So if you're in that area or you want to drive there, it's, it does look fantastic, that's for sure. Also, there was a lake just outside of town, Lake Bardwell. And I'm sure there's a lot of blue bonnets growing by, by the lake. I also watched a short video on Romero's Coffee and Mini Donuts. And that looks very good as well. Just not your typical mini donuts, but mini donuts of all kinds of uh, creative imagination has gone into it, that's for sure. But Yes, if you're in Ennis, I would go there. So if I am ever in Ennis, I'm going to Romero's for sure. They also have a lot of great places to eat, but one that caught my eye was uh, Bubba's Barbecue and Steakhouse. That actually looks uh, very good. 
And on Main Street, they also have the Ennis Railroad Museum. And uh, yeah, I, I love trains. That's uh, something that would capture my attention. And I couldn't help but notice they have the Galaxy Drive-In. And when I was looking it up, I thought, oh, it's going to have some great old history. But actually, it was built in um, 2003. And also, they have seven screens. So that is just got to be one of those mammoth places to go watch a movie. It's open seven nights a week. It's open right now. And two people I don't want to mention that have a connection to Innes, Texas, is the uh, 30s and 40s movie star uh, Ginger Rogers lived in Ennis uh, briefly, apparently, for a while. And also the producer of the Carol Burnett show, uh, Bob Banner, he was born in Ennis. So there you go. It looks like a really uh, spectacular place. And we have listeners in Ennis, Texas. So that's also fantastic. And if you listen to UFO Talker from your small town, and keep in mind, uh, UFO Talker is heard on, in at least 20 countries around the world. So wherever you live in the world, in your small town, we would love to hear about it. And if you send us an email about your small town, you might, you might hear it on an upcoming shout-out. And because it's the first show of 2024, there is something I read. I don't read it every episode, but every now and again I read it. And it is from one of my favorite late-night interviewers, Tom Snyder. So it's my tip of the hat to Tom Snyder. I just thought he was fantastic. I loved, loved his show. So sit back in your favorite chair, relax, mix your favorite pod teeny, and listen to the words now as they fly magically through the air. We will be right back after this message. And thank you, Mr. Snyder. The date was December 30th, 1966. It was a clear, moonlit night as Canadian Pacific Flight 421 flew at 31,000 feet through the inky darkness just off the Peruvian coast. The DC-8 was on its way to Mexico City. Captain Robert Milbank had put the aircraft on autopilot. Co-pilot J.D. Dahl looked down at his watch. It was 3 a.m., Most of the passengers were asleep. It was very quiet on the aircraft. He was thinking about the great time he and his wife had at their home in White Rock, British Columbia last New Year's Eve. Captain Milbank, who had been looking at something off the left side, asked Dahl to take a look at this. The pilot and co-pilot could see two extremely bright white lights. Within a minute, The two white lights seemed to be moving towards their aircraft. Finally, the object placed itself off their left wing and paced their DC-8. Co-pilot J.D. Dahl thought the object was roughly the same size as their DC-8 and about 500 feet away. They could see a row of dimmer, yellow-white lights between the two white lights. They called for other crew members to take a look. Some thought they could make out the shape of a craft like a saucer shape. After seven minutes, the lights moved towards the tail of the DC-8, and finally the object took off at tremendous speed. When asked about the sighting later, Captain Robert Milbank said, I must say that in my 26 years of flying, including wartime, I have never seen anything like this before. 
and I'm convinced that UFOs are not a dream in somebody's head. What did the crew of Flight 421 see in the early morning hours of December 30th, 1966? In his final report, co-pilot J.D. Dahl said, I was a non-believer before, but I was satisfied that we'd been intercepted by something not of this earth, and I've been in the interception business for four years. My next guest is Preston Dennett, who has been investigating UFOs for over 35 years. He has also written over 30 books and 100 articles on UFOs and has appeared on TV and radio, including Coast to Coast. His most recent book is Humanoids in High Strangeness, 20 True UFO Encounters. This is Preston's second time on the podcast. Welcome back, Preston. Hey, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Um, so we're going to talk about your new book a little bit later in the show, but I have, the first thing I want to ask you is something that always fascinates me is, um, what UFO investigators living or dead do you have the most respect for? Ah, mm, I love that question. There's a lot of them. Yes. Really yeah. Yeah. You know, the ones that have already passed on are some of my favorite, honestly. <laughs> I mean, there are some living that I really respect, but quite a few that I don't, actually. <laughs> I won't name those names. Yes. But probably, you know, I really like Donald Kehoe. Yeah. He was a very early researcher uh, who fought against the cover-up and was part of the Air Force and really kind of had a hard time. <laughs> going against the party line, so to speak, and really getting the truth out about the subject. So he's definitely one of my favorite, Major Donald Kehoe. Mm -hmm. I also really adore and respect uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen. Yes, yeah. Because, you know, they started APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, which was really the first UFO citizen group of any size or influence and we just wouldn't be where we are today without them, <laughs> not and, even close. And the thing about them is um, they were basically doing all of this like on their kitchen table when they first started. Like they were just going all over the United States, like usually the day or a couple of days after whatever uh, big event happened. It's, it's, that in itself is a truly uh, remarkable story. Yeah, and very thorough researchers and did it in an objective way, you know, not believing everything they heard, nor being overly skeptical. So I really think that they're the superstars of this field. But mm. there's a lot of them. You know, James McDonald, yes. Dr. James McDonald. Yeah, yeah. Of course, J. Allen Hynek. Uh, these days, more currently, I really respect Timothy Good, Philip Mantle, Michael Schratt, Linda Zimmerman. I can count on, you know, a couple of hands, <laughs> the number of really good researchers I respect out there. I know it seems <laughs> it, like if you, if you um, think about like a shift from people in the past till today, uh, there seems to be more interest in the investigators kind of maybe being famous and, you know, getting on TV and all that kind of stuff and less about the actual investigating part. Yeah, yeah, there are people who are definitely taking this as an opportunity. 
or fame and fortune, which is, you know, it's never been about that for me. I'm actually kind of shy. <laughs> I, I was really shy when I first got started. <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into. I know, and that's the, <laughs> that's the thing that, um, of course, all the people that follow you know this, but for anyone that uh, is not been following uh, Preston, like you've been doing this a long time, like, you know, over 35 years, and you have interviewed tons and tons of people. Like, it's uh, really remarkable what, what you've accomplished. Yeah, thanks. Well, I appreciate that. I find it endlessly fascinating. Just when you think you've got a handle on things, something comes along and knocks you right over, and you're like, "Wow, I did not know that." Um, in the, I think especially in the last two years, we've definitely noticed a, kind of a resurgence, especially in the mainstream about the about UFOs. I'd like to get your opinion of what you think of all the U.S. government committees and um, David Grush's testimony. I have two minds about it, actually. On one hand, I think this is awesome. I mean, this is unprecedented. We have actual movement in official circles, which hasn't really happened to this degree in decades. It's always been UFOs are not real. There's nothing to it. It's not a threat to national security. If you think you saw a UFO, you're hoaxing, hallucinating, or misperceiving. Go away. Yes, yeah. uh, and now, of course, there's been a 180-degree turnaround. This is being discussed very seriously. And a lot of people are being brought into the field because of it. So I'm super excited about that. I mean, this is amazing to see, you know, UFOs being talked about on shows like 60 Minutes. Yes. Or the yeah. mainstream news. I'm like, wow, <laughs> I just never thought that this would happen. On the other hand... I think it's pretty clear that the cover-up is still firmly in place. All these new organizations like NASA forming their little study group or AARO, A-A-R-O, from the Pentagon talking about you know, their goals to start studying this subject. I'm thinking to myself, start studying it? What are you talking about? They've been studying this for a very long time. And they're talking about simple sightings. They're saying, we don't have enough evidence. We don't know what this is. It could be extraterrestrial. To me, that's disingenuous. That's just flat-out lies. They know what this is. They have more than 144 cases, <laughs> as they you know, started out talking about. It does, it does seem funny when, when you listen to some of the committees and you know, the, the chairs of the committees talk you just kind of shake your head because you're thinking, like you mentioned, like a hundred cases, like <laughs> there's like, uh, you know, tens of thousands, it could be millions of uh, yeah. cases. Like <laughs> it's been going on for like, you know, 70, 80 years. That oh, it made part, me really angry. Yeah. That Especially is... the, the first congressional hearing, I think it was about two or three years ago. Or Ronald Moultrie, I think that was his name, and the other guy, Daly, Mr. Daly, yeah. or the head of the Defense Department, were answering questions and flat-out lying. Yeah. I mean, they were seriously and provably, demonstrably lying. <laughs> I remember they were asked, have we ever shot at one of these UFOs? And both quickly, too quickly, said no. I'm like, what? <laughs> we can prove that that is absolutely false. Well, 
obviously they they never uh, read the report on unidentified flying objects <laughs> by, <laughs> by Captain um, Edward J. Repelt, because I believe that's in the first sentence of his book. <laughs> he talks about a, a jet, I think it was a Sabre jet, an F-86, firing on a UFO, and that was in the mid-50s, so... Yeah, there's countless examples. Oh, they, yeah. They were also asked about the Malmstrom incident in Montana, Malmstrom Air Force yeah. Base, 1967, where UFOs showed up and shut down our missiles. And they said, we have no reporting on that. We don't know what you're talking about. What? Wow. Wow. And I'm like, really? That, you're the head of the yeah. defense and you've never heard of this? That I didn't believe that for a second. And it was so <laughs> disappointing to see them like say, well, we have some films of UFO. And it took them literally 10 minutes to stop frame a little yeah. white dot. <laughs> and, then, was... and then one of them, they explained away. They said, oh, and this is really this. Yeah. So that was the first one a couple of years ago, but more recently with the Grush testimony. Yes. I'm like, okay, let's sit down. Let's grab our popcorn. Let's watch this. <laughs> and I have to say, it went a little farther than I thought it would. And I was pleased to hear members of Congress saying there is a UFO cover-up. UFOs are real. The Pentagon isn't cooperating. Some of us have seen UFOs. We want truth and transparency. I'm like, okay, well, that's awesome. But if you said some of us have seen UFOs, but we're not going to name names. And that got me angry. I'm like, you just said be transparent. Yeah. Now you're not telling the truth. And they talked more than the actual witnesses did, which was a little disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) One thing you mentioned already, and that has really hit home for me, is when uh, one of the committees, um, I can't remember, there's been so many, I can't remember which one off the top of my head. Uh, Oh, we're going to get to the bottom of this, and you know, we're going to get into a skiff, and everything will be known, but they've kind of been stonewalled or turned back and they've even mentioned it through all of their efforts. They've kind of just accepted being turned down. Like they, they've kind of accepted the status quo kind of. Yeah. And this is why that was not disclosure, not even remotely. I know. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's almost as if they put on a show to this is really going to be different. And then in the background, somebody or some organization in the government came to them and said, look, you can't do this because of, you know, ABC and we've been doing this and it's national security. It, it's almost like they have pulled back from, uh, from their position, <clears throat> especially uh, Tim Burchette, who seemed to be really gung-ho. And then now that's, he's kind of faded a bit from, uh, being in the forefront (laughs) yeah well it's not completely gone away there's still a lot of talk and this did bring a level of legitimacy to it so on that hand you know i'm pretty excited about it and to hear them talking about crashed ufos and et bodies in an unequivocal way is amazing i know because really when you heard grush say what he said it is truly unbelievable because Anybody who's been researching or investigating UFOs, like you have heard all these before, so it wasn't so, you know, exciting for us, but 
when someone of his stature says it publicly, you're going, wow, okay, so, you know, this yeah. is verification of all the things that we've been looking into for all of these years. It's, it was quite, I felt it was quite astounding that, um, uh, of what he said, but it seemed to be a couple of weeks later, just the other news overtook what he said, and, it, you know, the news cycle seemed to, to go on. Which is kind of what I expected. Yeah, yeah. To me, disclosure ultimately is showing us the bodies, showing us the craft, you know, put this in front of mainstream scientists in a way that's absolutely conclusive. Until then, you know, this is not even, like I said, it's not disclosure. It's all talk. It's yeah. very little action. So far. And they're still talking only about sightings for the most part. Let's talk about the landing trace cases. There's evidence for you. Let's talk about the implant removal cases. How about bringing up some contactees, people who have real information from the heart of this whole subject? They're not doing that. I know. It's almost as if, I think it was in, you know, if you go back 20 years or 30 years, something like that, there was a lot of people who would definitely accept uh, UFO sightings and all that. But once you started talking about abductions, that made a lot of people uneasy, you know, back then. They, they would go so far, but that was like a bridge too far. But um, now that, that is so commonplace with people in ufology that you're thinking the people who are interested in UFOs are so far ahead of the curve compared to where the government is in, uh, like, mainstream society. Yeah, the government publicly. <laughs> Privately, I think they know exactly what's going on. And I don't trust them. I don't think they were ever willingly be truthful or transparent or disclose, ever. Yes. I think really yeah. the only reason we're seeing this at all is because they want to control the narrative. They're at the point now where there's so much evidence out there. If they don't say something, they're going to lose credibility. Mm-hmm. They'll become irrelevant. They have to start disclosing or people simply won't believe them. And we're already at that point. I think so. Um, the one thing I've mentioned, like you have interviewed many, many, you know, hundreds of people. And I would like to know recently or more recently, maybe in the last year or so, what are the trends that you see when you interview people about their experiences that are different from, let's say, maybe 20 or 30 years ago? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Right off the bat, I can say that there's now a lot more legitimacy to the subject, so people are much more open about it and often willing to allow me to use their real names, which almost never happened in the beginning. But it's the same stories and experiences people have had for years and years. Really, I don't see any significant change in what's happening to people in terms of you know the types of ETs or what happens when a person is on board a craft. Uh, so that's very consistent, actually. I think I do get more reports of human-looking ETs, uh, which we heard a lot about, you know, the so-called greys. And they kind of got really latched on by the media, and, which is very fear-based to an extent. 
that's being being pushed aside and people are recognizing that this is not something we need to fear, that they don't have a nefarious agenda, that they're not here to take over our planet, that really their agenda is one of you know pulling people on board and healing them or warning them about nuclear proliferation and wars and corruption and the destruction of the environment. I saw recent polls on Facebook and 80% of people were along those lines, which was real encouraging to me because <laughs> our government is really still pushing that ET threat narrative. If, um, well, that's uh, one thing you mentioned is the, that you're seeing more people are more witnesses talking about uh, the aliens looking like more human, like, and that always fascinated me because there has been, um, reports of alien or human looking aliens for a long, long time, but you never, there wasn't many of them, but they were definitely there, but you're saying you're, you're getting a lot more where the people look very human like. Yeah. And I've always gotten them. In fact, if you look at the history of UFO research, it began in really largely in the 1950s when it was really started to be taken seriously. And that was the contactee era. And there were people like George Adamski and Howard Menger, Truman Bethram, Daniel Fry, Orfeo Angelucci, a bunch of them talking about human-looking ETs. And that got pushed underground. And I think our governments really made a concerted effort to ridicule those guys. And it was very effective because even researchers to this day kind of look with some dispersions <laughs> upon those accounts. And now people are taking a second look at them, particularly like Daniel Fry, who was a rocket scientist. But if you look at the early accounts, people like Charles Moody, Sergeant Charles Moody, he saw ETs that were pretty much human-looking. Hmm. Or Herbert Shermer, a police officer. And if you just go through the accounts decade by decade, this contactee era never stopped. It was just sort of, they made a real strong debunking efforts and it was effective. And I think this drove people to stop talking about it. And of course, the Greys started to get a lot more press coverage because there was a lot, of, you know, there is to this day a still fear surrounding this subject. And for some reason, I don't know why they got so much more publicity, but. I, yeah, definitely people see human, absolutely human looking. They're often described as perhaps uh, very beautiful or a little bit stronger or taller, uh, but all different ethnicities. That's why I don't like to use the term Nordic, which is tossed around inaccurately, I think, because I have people who describe human looking ETs with dark skin or dark complexions and dark eyes and dark hair and so forth, but all different types, human-looking grays, praying mantis, tall whites, short little blue beings. I mean, it goes on. There's many who are humanoid usually, I mean, almost always actually, well, but kind of unique. Well, the one thing you did mention, you're, a, lot of, a lot of this is kind of fear-based when you hear it being talked about. But I guess the one thing that's reassuring, if you really think about it, you know, if these civilizations are a thousand years or 10,000 years or millions of years ahead of us, they easily could have done whatever they were going to do already. So, you know, that's what 
makes me feel better because yeah, like if they were going to do something, they would have would have done it already. Exactly, and I think what one of the problems is, you know, we're taught to fear. It's a very fear-based society, a fear-based media, and we have a tendency to impose our own cultural values, if I can use that term, values, on you know strangers. And so, because we just act in such horrible ways to each other, I think we expect others to behave that way. And we're just not seeing that. So it's really unfortunate. That's why I always encourage people to take an objective look, step back from your beliefs, look at what's actually happening to people who are having face-to-face contact. And you'll see that it's the, it's the way it's being portrayed still is not fully accurate. It's one of the reasons I do this research because People are looking to our governments for answers, and they're lying about it. We're going to find the truth about what ET contact is like from the contactees. And almost everyone I interview, a good 80 to 90, 95% wouldn't trade it for anything. Mm. It could be a big mixed bag in the beginning (laughs) when this is all happening and rolling out for them, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. Are they crazy? It can be very scary. But ultimately, after you know they've been healed or shown other planets or you know shown the engine room or taught how to fly the craft, they realize, wow, <laughs> they're not here to hurt us. Regarding um, abduction cases, which you have interviewed a lot of uh, that type, when you interview a witness, do you uh, generally? just believe them all or do you have like an inner mechanism that gives you a feeling that oh i think this is something different than an abduction case or what how do you approach when you when you interview someone who says they've been abducted right well just one quick thing and regarding the term abduction i don't use that anymore i try not to because it offends some of the witnesses a good number of them don't feel that it's an accurate. So I usually just call it an onboard experience. I'll refer to them as experiencers or contactees rather than abductees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we are suffering a little bit from semantic disaster in this field, calling them UFOs in the first place and now UAPs and so forth. But that's just a quick aside. <laughs> but yeah, regarding your question, um, I do get contacted by a lot of people. And initially, the people I talked to were people I loved and trusted and knew were telling the truth because they were my family. They were my friends. They were my coworkers. And so I had was very fortunate in that way because I was able to get a baseline of what people are actually having happen to them. And when I started interviewing more people who I didn't know, I could, to an extent, predict what they would say because the contact experience does follow a pretty set pattern. I mean, I know what to expect when someone is taken inside a UFO and what the interior will look like, what the ETs are wearing, how they act, the tools people see, um, the procedures or experiences they have. And there are a good number of them that even today aren't super well-known, but certainly back then, when I started research, were not because there was no virtually no publicity on this subject. And it became pretty easy to say, oh, well, this person is telling the truth because here they are describing exactly the same thing this person described. 
was so funny to me to hear people trying to describe what telepathy is who've never heard of it. Mm. And they're saying things like, well, he's, they're, you know, I don't know if you're going to believe me, but they were talking in my head. Or like the indirect lighting that you often see uh, on board UFOs. People try to describe that. They're like, well, there was no lamps or lights that I could see, but the entire interior was all lit up. So there's a whole long list of details that can help corroborate or verify or validate a person's experience. So do you do you run into a certain percentage of people where you think this kind of doesn't feel real or it could be more of a mental health issue or or just you accept everyone on on with their story? No, I wouldn't say I I would accept everyone by any means, but the vast majority of people who find the courage to, you know, reach out and contact me or that I reach out to myself, which is much more rare, I would say very few of them are what would fall under the category of hoaxing or anything like that. And yeah, every now and then I have interviewed people who I felt were mentally ill. And I was fortunate my mother was a counselor. So she was able to introduce you know, a lot of the mental illnesses to me <laughs> in terms of schizophrenia and all those sort of things. So I was somewhat familiar with it, uh, and that definitely helped. But I don't get a whole lot of that, hmm. honestly. And there's all kinds of ways you can validate a person's story. I always do an initial interview, which is not recorded. I just take notes and feel out you know, what their story might be. And then I will do a recorded interview and see if their story has changed, dive deep into their experiences. Then you start really asking them to provide, you know, any proof that they can, which is, you know, often they don't have it. A lot of these stories are purely anecdotal, but some aren't. Some people do have, you know, marks on their body perhaps or evidence of an implant or photographs. I always ask for, if I can, get some corroborating witnesses because it's rare that a person is absolutely alone in their encounters. This does kind of follow families and people. The average encounter usually has multiple witnesses. So then I ask for you know, references. I'll do fact-checking, validate their employment. And you can often tell when a person's telling the truth, because they become very emotional. They're very reserved about talking about the more high strangeness aspects of their encounter. They will say things like, you know, I don't do drugs. <laughs> I've got no history of mental health, you know, mental illness in my family. I've got a good job. I'm well-educated. Uh, please don't use my name. Uh, they're not seeking publicity. Yeah. They don't, anyone who's asked for money... <laughs> For their story. And that has happened hmm, maybe five or ten times. I, I, I just won't do that. <laughs> no. I have zero interest in you know, buying someone's story because to me that invalidates it to a certain degree. And what's really interesting, real quick, <laughs> is I have interviewed people who I thought had legitimate experiences but were mentally ill mm. or on drugs. I mean, I had one guy telling me this really interesting sighting 
and he was with a crowd of friends, but they were doing some pretty heavy-duty drugs. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <sighs> you know, your encounter sounds very interesting, but due to the fact, and I'm glad he was honest about it, because you have to ask these hard questions. Yeah. Do you think, have you noticed this in the, the last, let's say, 20 years? Are there more or less people from the military and maybe from the uh, law enforcement coming to you? Do you think there were more before or more now? More now, hmm. I would say for sure. Initially, yeah, people are very reluctant to talk. When I interview someone, I will ask them, did you report this? Did you call the police? Did you call MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, or NUFORC, the National UFO Reporting Center? which have been around for longer than I've been in this field, which is 1986. And almost no one reports this. And I think that's especially true if you're law enforcement or in the military or have a high-level career, high-profile career. Because um, there are some people who are very famous, who you know, a couple I've talked to, um, a couple were involved in cases that I've researched, and they wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> but yeah, I've talked to police officers, military, high-level military officials, uh, subcontractors who work for the military, this sort of thing. It's pretty rare that I get a military witness for whatever reason, uh, because, yeah, I think they're a little bit reluctant. But now, they're coming out of the woodwork. Hmm. One of my favorite interviews I ever did was with a gentleman who was actually on his, in a hospital, on his deathbed, a military subcontractor who worked at Edwards Air Force Base and wanted to do his part towards disclosure and described seeing what he thought was a UFO in a hangar. It, it was this tiny silver mirror-like chrome craft floating off the ground, making this buzzing noise sitting in a hangar at Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California. And it turned out it wasn't a UFO. He had to do a lot of um, questioning from his employer who wouldn't talk about it, but finally did. And he found out it was reverse engineered from ET technology. But yeah, every now and then I get to talk to a military witness and it's amazing. When that gentleman, so he wanted to tell you this because it was something he felt he had to get off of his his mind what year did that happen oh gosh like um, when he when he saw the um i believe it was i would have to look that up i've got it of course written down i believe it was 1980s late 1980s or so it wasn't all that you know it wasn't like an early early 40s or 50s i know that could have been 70s. I would have to look it up. Honestly, I just don't remember the date. But that, so when you hear stories like that, that is obviously going a long way towards, you know, corroborating stuff that Grush has said and, and other people. Just because even to prove that there was reverse engineering, that, that goes a long way to proving that, well, they're getting this from something real, not just something that was manufactured on Earth. Yeah, and I would say, I think it's a fair statement to say that most major researchers have whistleblower accounts. There's a lot of them. Uh, so I don't think it's nearly as rare. It's not just Bob Lazar and David Grush and 
a few others that are pretty high profile. There's a lot of them. What is your opinion of Bob Lazar? Because uh, he's been around a long time, and I think his his image has uh, gone through a few, you know, different uh, the way people perceive him from when he first came out, and then after he was on Joe Rogan. What what is your sense of uh, Bob Lazar? Well, I think he's been vindicated over and over. Um, you know, I haven't talked to him. I haven't interviewed him or I've certainly followed his story very closely. And I was intrigued from the beginning. It was pretty clear to me that there's stuff going on at Area 51. And since he came out, a lot of other researchers like Bill Hamilton and Linda Moulton Howe and a number of people have interviewed people from within Area 51 who have told similar stories. Studying his accounts looking for anything that might point towards a hoax, I didn't see it. Hmm. I, I believe him. Uh, and I think as time goes on, I believe him more and more. And there's little, little bits and details and from a contactee perspective, because that's where I focus a lot of my research, pretty much. That's what I'm most interested in. I think that's where the pay dirt is. And contactees have told me they absolutely believe him. I would point to Don Anderson of... Uh, South Fork, I think that's the city, uh, Utah. He, as a kid, had an experience where he was taken on board a craft and later saw the drawings made by Bob Lazar, and it knocked him over because it looked exactly like the craft he had been on board. Hmm. I would point to another contactee who I wrote a full-length book about, Dolly Safran. I wrote the book Symmetry about her experiences. She's a huge supporter of Bob Lazar because he's explaining things that she knows for a fact is true about how these craft operate and what they look like inside and so forth. So from that perspective, I'm like, there's more validation. And there's all these little bits. And when a witness is viciously attacked by debunkers who tries so hard to smear his story, to me, that raises eyebrows. Because, you know, if he's lying, why are you so <laughs> dead set on spending all this energy, just ignore it. And I think, you know, he's been able to prove his story in a number of ways that he did work at Area 51 uh, and other little bits of it. So, yeah, I'm a supporter. I think he's telling the truth. I can't prove it. But the more I hear about it, the, the more I'm convinced that he's just one of the first of many, many whistleblowers who are saying the same thing. If you could pick one or um, a few uh, UFO cases, what do you think are the best UFO cases on record? Like if you had to only tell one or two uh, that you know of to someone who didn't really know anything about uh, UFOs, what do you think of the maybe one or two best cases that have ever happened? <laughs> Oh, goodness. Yeah, I uh, know, because there's, there's a lot. But. <laughs> I mean, there are so many on record that it's really hard to choose just one, and I've always felt it's the huge number of cases out there that is our best evidence. But I would point to the 1954 wave in France, which is, involves multiple incidents over the months of September, October, November, literally hundreds, including landings and humanoids. 
if you look into that, it's absolutely undeniable <laughs> that something was going on. Uh, I, I investigated a wave of sightings over Topanga Canyon in 1992 to 94, and it's hundreds of witnesses. And on June 14th, 1992, I've got a, a group of about 30 witnesses in separate locations in Topanga Canyon, which is right outside of L.A. along the coast. And they all saw stuff on the same night. It absolutely corroborates each other. That's a great, one of my best cases for sure. Would it be a fair statement to say that the coastline off of Southern California has a lot of UFO activity? Yeah, it really, really is. I think mile for mile, it's one of the top producers, if not the top producer of what we call USO accounts, unidentified submersible objects. Because you can't go a mile down the Pacific Coast Highway, which runs along the coastline there, without a documented UFO encounter. Every researcher in that area has them. Andrew Ruffle, Bill Hamilton, Robert Stanley, Barbara Lamb, Yvonne Smith, all of them have multiple encounters in that area. Another area that seems to attract UFO activity is the uh, U.S. Naval Weapons Station at Seal Beach, which is in Orange County. At one time, or maybe they still do, but I know for sure at one time they they kept nuclear weapons there, which is kind of scary because it's right next to a whole bunch of people live there. But And, uh, you know, with Robert Hastings and all of his work on UFOs being interested in nuclear weapons facilities, and I, that always uh, really dawned on me because I think for a long time, no one knew that they kept nuclear weapons there. I'm not sure if they still do or not. I, I don't know off the top of my head, but that is something that um, attracts a lot of UFOs. So like you're saying, yeah, it's, that is a, a huge area of, of uh, you know, high, definitely your words, high strangeness for sure. <laughs> yeah, Which, there's no doubt that the ETs are interested in are very concerned, I should say, about anything nuclear. And that's definitely come up in my own research. And if I might, real quick, <laughs> describe a USO encounter, which points towards that. Uh, this was an encounter that occurred in 1971. This is a, another gentleman who I would classify as a whistleblower, Ray Sachs, who was an electrician's mate on the USS Clamagore uh, submarine. And in 1971, at night was heading up the east coast at about 12 knots. He was a lookout. They were on the surface of the Atlantic, uh, not far offshore. And he, there was another lookout, and the commander and the second-in-command were just four guys when this USO shows up, and it starts pacing the Clamagore. And it did it for about 15 minutes, right alongside it. It was this bright, round, white object. They couldn't see it on sonar. But one by one, all the higher-ranking officers came up on deck because they wanted to take a look at it. And finally, it moved off. You know, it came zooming in at over 100 knots, mm -hmm. the guy I interviewed said, and then darted off. Yeah, stayed for about 15 minutes, and the second-in-command turns to the commander. This is so interesting to me. And says, sir, how would you like me to record this event in the log? And the commander says... Officers who report this kind of incident do not move up in rank. And so it was never recorded. Wow. I, I told this on another show in a submarine 
guy called in. And he's like, yep, that's exactly, you know, we've had this happen all the time. They don't record it. None of it is recorded. But that, the Clamagor was carrying nuclear torpedoes, which wasn't known at that time. And I think that was another message from these UFO folk who show up and say, listen, we know what you're doing. And, you know, the Malmstrom incident is the ultimate of that kind. And I got to interview a guy who was there firsthand, who had never told his story to anybody. So they're absolutely concerned. So that took place off in 1971. The the submarine was how far off the coast and where approximately do you recall? Um, it was about 10 miles out to sea or so, not far. And it was off the coast of... Gosh, if I remember correctly, like North Carolina, um, that general area, right in the middle there. Guy that you interviewed, without him telling you, then that no one would ever know this. Yeah, exactly. And he's, you know, there's a lot of people on that ship. I did verify his employment. And it just makes me wonder, you know, if this is one guy telling me this, you know, he did, he was elderly. He wanted to do his part. Uh, makes me realize that the vast majority we don't hear about. This must be happening quite a lot more than we have any idea of. It's so unfortunate. This UFO cover-up is, in my opinion, a very bad choice on the part of our military and our governments. I don't want to say completely it's our go government's doing it because it's beyond that. There's a lot of good people in government, but it's the military-industrial complex, the highest levels of the military, who are responsible for this cover-up. The cabal, or you know, call them what you want. I'm unhappy about it. I think it's a really bad decision. Preston, I want to shift gears here for a bit, and I want to talk about your, your book, Humanoids and High Strangeness, uh, 20 True UFO Encounters. So I have read the book, and as most of your books, I, I really enjoyed it. There's a couple of cases I want to bring up, and I wonder if you could talk about them. Uh, the first one is your chapter that was called uh, Mother and Son on Board a UFO. Yeah, I absolutely love this case, which is why I gave it the first chapter, <laughs> because it is a multiple witness case. It's got physical evidence to support it a lot of witnesses, it's ongoing, it's generations of encounters, really. And it's just a fascinating story. The main witness, primary witness, is Richard Simon. He did allow his name to be used. And he was just a young boy, I think it's around seven years old, when suddenly he suffered from insomnia. It was an overnight thing. He couldn't sleep, he had a fear of intruders, and they could never figure out why until years later. He's, I think, 20, 21 years old. And his mom, whose name is Ines, decides she's going to quit smoking and go to a hypnotherapist to do it. And she told her son, Richard, you know, why don't you come along with me and maybe we can get her to look into your insomnia. And he didn't want to do it, but she convinced him. So they go to the hypnotist's office. She's very well respected professionally trained, a doctor, you know, someone who knows what they're doing. And he's sitting in the waiting room, and here's his mom crying through the walls and becomes quite concerned because she's in there for an hour. And he's thinking, what's going on? You know, she's just trying to quit smoking. This is concerning. And she comes out 
teary-eyed and a little bit shaken up. And he asked her, what's wrong? And she just kind of shook her head and she says, it's your turn. You go in. We'll talk about it after. And he goes into the doctor's office. Her name was Retha. I forget her last name, but I know who she is. And he wanted to hear about his mother, but she's like, no, no, no. Let's talk about you. You're suffering from insomnia. What's going on? And he says, you know, I have no explanation. I've got a good family life. There's no trauma. My parents are very nurturing. Just one day I couldn't sleep. And she says, okay, well, let's see if we can explore this. And puts him into a hypnotic trance, which took, you know, a good 20 minutes, half an hour. And asked him, you know, why can't you sleep? And he immediately started seeing flashes of light and then what we would call you know, grays, faces of grays looking down at him. And the dam just broke. And he remembered being taken on board this craft. Mm. And she didn't have to lead him at all. Uh, she recorded this session, of course. Uh, and it all just came out. And what he described is waking up at night and seeing a bright light shining into the house. And he gets out of bed and is walking around and goes to his mom's room. His dad's at work. Uh, he worked at night. And she's not in bed. So he's concerned. I'm thinking, what is going on here? And finally, the next thing he knows, front door opens and there's grays. And he's not sure how he got pulled on board, but he finds himself on board being physically examined by short little grays, a taller gray, and then a very tall gray. And he says it wasn't pleasant. He was quite frightened, unable to move. They did come up to him and talk to him and said, why are you screaming? Everything's okay. We're almost done. You'll be home soon. You don't need to be afraid. And that encouraged him. But at one point he did hear a woman screaming bloody murder from the other room, saying things like, if you hurt my son, I will bleep, bleep, bleep. You know, she was going off. And he thought, well, thank God there's an adult here. He didn't quite realize it was his mother. Wow. Uh, but so that went on for a good, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour. He's not sure. That's what he recalled under hypnosis. He wakes up and he lashes out at the hypnotist. Like, How dare you plant that in my brain? How could you do that? You're so unethical. And she says, listen, hold on. I didn't say a word. You can listen to the tapes. This really happened to you. This is a memory. I didn't do anything. And he calmed down once he realized that she was right because his mother remembered the same thing. Wow. All, all the details were exactly the same. So they were able to validate each other's accounts. And it's just so interesting from there because she turns to him and says, you know, honey, when I was seven, I saw a very strange being when I went out to the barn early one morning. She was a farm girl. And she can't describe what she saw because she doesn't really remember and it quite frightened her. And she ran away. But it was an interesting coincidence that she was seven and so was he. And, of course, he grows up, Richard, and has children. And his seven-year-old daughter comes running into the room one day and points to the TV. He's watching a UFO show, and there's a gray on the television. And she says, Daddy, Daddy, that's the thing that's coming into my room at night. Wow. <laughs> wow. She had been suffering from nosebleeds. And 
they couldn't figure it out. And she's like, that's the guy who was doing it. It's that. And she was seven. So that's three generations. Yeah, that, that seems to be a common, a common thread with a lot of uh, cases like this. Yeah, and it goes on from there. Because she, he took her to the doctor and they found an implant in her sinus. She grows up. She has kids. Her kid reaches the age of seven and starts saying, Mommy, <laughs> there's these weird hairless monkey men coming into my room at night. She called up her dad. She's like, you need to hear this from your granddaughter. Uh, so that's four generations, all at age seven. Wow. Being visited that, that by a parent. That is strange, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. And there's validation for you because... Uh, they were not discussing this with their children at all, none of them. So the second case I wanted to bring up from your book, it's called The Alien in the Red Vest. Now, I found that one extremely interesting also. Yeah, I absolutely love that case as well. It's another multiple witness case. The gentleman is amazing. He's got a eidetic, you know, a photographic memory which is really interesting to me because a number of contactees do. And he certainly falls into that category. And he contacted me because I'd actually mentioned his case in my book, UFOs Over New York, because I had read about it. He reported it in very brief, just a paragraph detail to MUFON. And he went to a bookstore and saw, (laughs) it's like, oh my gosh, this is my case. And he reached out to me, and I ended up doing an in-depth interview with him and his sister, who was involved. And his name is Robert Barton. And back in 1965, he's about four years old, living in West Corners, New York. And his dad was out to work. His mom's in the kitchen. His sister's in the other room. And he's sitting in the living room watching television when he gets this feeling someone's watching him from the window, the living room window, <laughs> faces the side yard and finally he turns his head and looks and sure enough someone was there but they dropped down immediately quicker than he can see who it was and he runs over and looks and there's nobody there he's like huh so he sat back down on the couch and it happened again he ran over he's like this must be the neighbor kids playing a joke on me but he's like well it's strange because the window is a little bit too high and whoever would be doing it would have to you know, sit on the shoulders of someone else. So that's what he's thinking. It's his friends doing it. They're playing a joke. And after the third or fourth time, he runs over to the window. And being you know, the kid he is, he sticks his thumb in his ears, his fingers up, and starts wiggling them. You know, like kids do. Yeah. <laughs> sort of nanu, nanu. <laughs> and sticks his tongue out and goes, nee, kind of making you know, a face. And at this point, uh, he sees this figure just kind of rise up, like from an elevator, just float upwards. And it's a gray. He doesn't recognize it as a gray because there was no talk of grays back then. Didn't even really recognize it as an ET. (laughs) But it was your typical gray. It was wearing a deep red sleeveless vest Hmm. with this sort of emblem or... I don't know, it's a little symbol on the chest. And it's staring right at him. It's got the big dark eyes, large, round, oval, bald head. 
just a slit for a mouth, kind of an upturned nose. And he's about, you know, two, three feet away, max. And he's, it's staring at him, and he's staring at it. And he realizes, oh, you know, this is not human. <laughs> what is this? Absolutely freaks him out. He screams at the top of his lungs and runs into the kitchen and drags his mom to the window. He won't go near the window. Uh, it's not there anymore, of course. And she goes to the window and like, what, honey? He's like, I saw a wolf. I think I saw a wolf. It had a red vest on. She's like, a wolf? A red vest? Honey, <laughs> what are you talking about? But he's near tears. I mean, she can see he's telling the truth. And it became kind of a family joke that night because word spread fast. And he's got a fairly large family. And they were all talking about it. And he thought it was a one-off and it would never happen again. But, of course, it did. About a half dozen times. Always the same thing. He'd be watching TV. And only when he was alone in the room, and it would rise up. And finally, he would just go over, do the same thing, stick his tongue out, <laughs> and it would come and stare at him. For 10 seconds was usually about all he could handle before he'd run off. And he stopped telling people because he didn't like the ridicule. But one time he says he stared at this thing for a good 30 seconds. Hmm. So, which is a long time. And uh, he was wondering what the heck is going on because around this time other weird things were happening. His sister started saying, "You know, something came out of your room, <laughs> uh, Bob, or what'd you call him? Yeah, Rick." And uh, no, that's right, Robert Barton. That's his name. I think I said Richard. It's Robert. Uh, so she called him Bob, and she, and she's like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "It was this little man with a big head and no hair." And she said it came to her and knocked her out. And she tried to run to tell their mother. And she said it happened repeatedly. Their house was strange. His room was off of her room. There was no hallway. So the only way to get into his room was through her room. So she's having these weird experiences. And then one day he wakes up. And he is not in his room at all. He's on board a craft. And he's with his mom and his sister, who's one year younger. And by this point, he's about five years old. Remember, he has an eidetic memory. He remembers this vividly. And she was kind of, his mom was kind of out of it, entranced, sort of, in a daze. His sister was just crying her eyes out. And they're being kind of led down this corridor by three or four grays. And he's taken into a room separated he's like no no no. i don't want i want to go in the room with my mother and my sister and they're like no 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 you go here we'll take you to them after you're done and so they take him into this room and physically examine him and you can see all sorts of screens on the walls and things and they say well something's wrong with him and he became quite alarmed he says it wasn't really all that scary it was very much like a doctor's visit but when they said something's wrong <laughs> he became concerned and then the other taller, more human-looking figure walks in and says, you know what, I think he's going to be fine. Um, whatever this is, he's not sure what it is, it's not going to manifest until he's well past child-rearing age. And he thought, well, hmm, okay. <laughs> and didn't think much of it. And finally they said, we're done. And uh, he's like, okay, can I go see my mom now? And they said, no. 
we'll take you to her room when she's done. And that got him angry because that's not what they told him. <laughs> they said, we'll take you to her room when you're done. And now they're changing their story a little bit. <laughs> so he had to wait for another five or 10 minutes. And then finally was taken back. And his mom was still in a daze. He kept pulling her arm and saying, mom, mom, look, look. And she finally just said, listen, Robert, just do what they say and we'll be out of here soon. And the next thing he knows, the floor is turning transparent and they're being kind of lowered down into the woods near their home, apparently. And he wakes up in bed the next morning thinking, wow, the police are going to come over, government folks, we were taken on board this spaceship, this is a big deal. And goes running into the room and he, he slept super late, which is not like him. He never does that. He always wakes up when his dad goes to work. And so he was confused about that. He thought, well, maybe they let me sleep late because of all this happening. But his mom, you know, long story short, didn't remember. Neither did his sister. To this day, they don't remember. Only he remembers. Uh, but that was one of many experiences he's had. And when did you interview him? Oh, just recently. It was last year. I'm still in touch with him. I sent him his chapter like I did with all the witnesses so he could verify all of it and made sure I didn't put anything out of order. They always do have a few corrections, but he ended up adding a few experiences <laughs> here and there. And uh, yeah, it was just recently. I'm still in touch with him. And how, how old is he now? Uh, he, well, let's see. He is, let me just do the math here. He would be about 62, 63. Yeah, 63. And he was recently diagnosed with a heart condition and diabetes as well. So I was thinking maybe that's what the ETs were talking about. They were looking at him and his genetic markers and all of this. Isn't, he did have children. <laughs> yeah, isn't that weird? That is, you always kind of think that in the back of your mind when you read about all of these cases that are similar to this. And you think if the I think you've mentioned this in a few of your books, but if people have an ailment, why don't the aliens fix it or correct it or things like that? Yeah, and they often do. I mean, I've got a book that I wrote, The Healing Power of UFOs, which outlines 300 cases, several from my own research, but literally every major researcher out there has them. Philip Mantle, Timothy Good. Tim Beckley, Brad Steiger, Yvonne Smith, Barbara Lamb, Edith Fiore, Ray Hernandez. I mean, I could go on. Uh, it's not nearly as uncommon as you might think. And they do heal people of all manner of illnesses. And I guess the vast majority go unreported and perhaps even unrecognized by the contactees themselves uh, because they don't you know, require insurance. They're not asking for money. They're not tooting their own horn. People do have missing time, and suddenly they'll have spontaneous remission of an illness, or it's perhaps treated before it even manifests. But yeah, not everything is healed. And some contactees have asked about that. One lady I interviewed was in a pretty severe car accident in Georgia and was pulled from the scene of the accident and healed. And they told her, we can't heal all of this because this car accident is karmic. These injuries weren't supposed to be as severe as they are, but you chose this. You're, there are things you need to learn from this. 
And that came up in another case in England, another case in Arizona. They used the same word, karmic, mm. actually. Wow. And Bud Hopkins talked about that. He's like, yeah, we have people who are taken on board and they're not healed. So I think sometimes, and this is very controversial, but from a very high spiritual perspective, we do choose the challenges in our life. And we do learn from hardship. And I think the ETs respect that and don't want to interfere with our karmic lessons that we came to learn. So I think that could be one of the reasons. And frankly, they can't go around healing everybody because that would cause even more problems. Just imagine if they handed over their healing technology. I uh, we have a tendency to abuse things and <laughs> you know, yes. overpopulation would be a real problem. Uh, probably be mishandled and you know, given to only the rich. I mean, it would be a mess. You know, then there'd be a healing race like there was an arms race. <laughs> I, I just hate to think how it would be abused. Could you imagine them, the military getting a hold of this and then using it on soldiers and just sending them back out into the field? The trauma this would cause off the charts. I know. It's... Um... You know, there's so many aspects of this uh, phenomenon. It is just sometimes mind-boggling. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good term. Before we wrap this up, I'm going to put a link to Preston's website and also a link to where you can uh, buy his books. And mainly all of his books are good that I've read so far, so you, you can't go wrong. But Preston, I just want to thank you for being on the podcast. You are always interesting, always fascinating. You're it's great to listen to. Hey, I appreciate that. Thanks very much. Here are the Canadian Civil Aviation Anomalies for the week of December 25th through December 29th, 2023. On December 27th, a WestJet Boeing 737-8CT flying from Liberia, Costa Rica to Toronto International Airport at approximately 9 nautical miles on final approach for Toronto International Airport on runway 24L and level at 3,000 feet reported being hit with a green laser appearing to originate from the left side of the aircraft. Also on December 27th, a Prop Air Beach 1900D flying from Rouen, Noranda, Quebec, conducted an overshot after an arriving aircraft reported a light on the runway. A runway inspection was conducted and the attendant confirmed that the object was a mechanic's lamp. On December 28th, at approximately 16.08 Zulu time, a North Wright Airways Beach 1900D flying from Norman Wells Northwest Territories to Tulita Northwest Territories declared a mayday and advised they were returning to the airport due to a security issue. A passenger was reported to have a gun, which later turned out to be a replica toy. Royal Canadian Mounted Police and Northwest Territories airports were notified. The aircraft landed uneventfully at 16.14 Zulu time. RCMP met the aircraft and removed the passenger. 
there was no impact on operations and all flights proceeded to their destinations without further incident. And now, the UFO Talker podcast brings you an audio excerpt from the book Hudson Valley UFOs by Linda Zimmerman. Used by permission from the author. Read by Joy Ryan. Published by Eagle Press. Book Synopsis. Author Linda Zimmerman covers not only the UFOs seen in the Hudson Valley in the 80s, but she points out that UFOs have been seen there for over 100 years. Lots of eyewitness accounts of giant triangle UFOs, discs, cylinders, and she also talks about abduction cases. Today, we are reading from pages 114 to 118. Brewster, New York, March 17, 1983. Every time the 1992 Unsolved Mysteries episode on the Hudson Valley UFO sightings is rebroadcast, Dennis Sant gets a flood of letters from curious viewers and authors looking to write about his encounter in Brewster, New York, on March 17, 1983. While he consented to be on several shows, for many years he has declined all offers until now. After reading about his experience in the book Night Siege, I also wrote Dennis a letter. In one of the many delightful coincidences during my research, my letter to him happened to arrive just as he had come to a point in my life that I wanted to connect all the dots in regards to his UFO sighting and the influence it has had on his life. As he began his first message to me, I received your letter today with great interest. Your timing is perfect, and for the first time an author has caught my interest. Through the years I have received many letters like yours and never felt compelled to get involved for many personal reasons, with a few exceptions. So here again was someone who now felt the time was right to speak, and after several email messages back and forth, I was convinced that I had to meet this man and interview him in person. Not only did he have a fascinating story to tell, but we had some interesting things in common. He was a kindred spirit, so to speak. In another coincidence, on June 13, 2012, I happened to have a meeting in Carmel, New York, almost an hour from my home, with a producer for a travel channel show for which I was going to make a guest appearance. The producer wanted to meet at a restaurant called George's Place, which happened to be right next to the Putnam County office building where Dennis Sant's office is located. What are the chances? Dennis and I made arrangements for me to stop by his office as soon as my meeting was over. In some ways, it was like meeting an old friend, perhaps because I had already seen him on television and spoken to him on the phone, but more likely because we had many similar thoughts and viewpoints, not the least of which was our fascination with UFOs. He spoke about his sightings in great detail, and as with most of the other witnesses I've interviewed, Dennis recalls the event as clearly as if it was yesterday. 
The story actually begins at 8.40 p.m. with his neighbor, Linda Nicoletti, who saw a massive V-shaped object over an elevated section of Route 84, which was close to her property. The craft was lined with bright, multicolored lights with a larger, brighter light underneath. Her initial thought was that it was a big jet about to crash, but when she opened her window, she realized it was silent, and then she also realized that it was moving so slowly it was practically hovering in place. The V-shaped craft moved ever so slowly across the roadway to her house, then turned 90 degrees and headed for the house of Dennis Sant. As it reached his house, she could see Dennis standing in his yard looking up at the enormous craft, and he was bathed in light from it. She could also see him running into his backyard to keep pace with the craft and remain directly under it. Nicoletti then called for her husband to come and look, and they saw Dennis and several other people in the neighborhood standing outside watching the UFO. They could also see that traffic had stopped on Route 84 as drivers sat mesmerized by the sight. She then called the sheriff's office and was told they had many calls about the object. In fact, some state police officers had witnessed it, but there was nothing to worry about because it was only an experimental military aircraft out of Stewart Airport in Newburgh. Subsequently, they denied making that statement. From the perspective of Dennis Sant, who was an official for Putnam County, the event began as he was driving home from church with his children. As he came down the road, he first saw a whitish light near his house. By the time he pulled into his driveway, he and his kids could see that the object was about 120 feet long, and from his initial view, Dennis described it as L-shaped. It was drifting slowly over his house at a height of no more than 50 feet above the roof. They ran into the backyard but lost sight of it. He then brought in the children to get them ready for bed and thought that was the end of the sighting. Then I had a strong urge to go back outside, he explained. And when he did, there was the craft, about a 100 yards away over Route 84 and only about 20 feet above a truck. He could see at least 30 to 40 cars stopped along the highway with their emergency flashers blinking, with all the people standing next to their cars pointing at the object. He ran back in to get his father and kids, and they all watched the object together. The ship was moving away, and Dennis thought to himself, I wish it would come back so I could get a better look at it. Perhaps it was only a coincidence, perhaps it was something more, but at the moment he wished that the aircraft would come back over his property, the ship turned and then started moving directly toward him. At this point, the massive object looked like it was V-shaped, with the center pointing down. The huge ship had a sequence of multicolored lights and came within 40 feet of where he was standing in front of the house, and it was no more than 20 feet over the telephone pole across the street. It was so close that if I had a baseball, I could have hit it. Dennis was in awe of the object that looked like a city of lights in the sky. The ship started to drift over his backyard, 
and he was able to jog and keep pace with it. His children became somewhat frightened and went inside to watch from the windows, but he and his father continued to watch the object at a very close distance. Once over the pond in his backyard, the ship stopped just at tree height, and the lights intensified threefold, lighting up everything in the area and reflecting brightly in the water beneath it. When he was closest to the object, he could just detect the slightest sound of an engine. Dennis stood transfixed for two to three minutes, but then became afraid that the ship might actually land in his yard. At that point, it began to move and slowly drift away out of sight, as if it had read his mind. But as scared as I was, I was sorry when it left. Dennis called the sheriff's office the next day and told them what he saw. They tried to downplay the incident, but he was certain about what he and hundreds of other people witnessed that night over his house. A local reporter wanted to give him his account for the newspaper, and at first he declined until they promised to keep his identity a secret. Unfortunately, as soon as the article appeared, the cat was out of the bag. The reporter had mentioned Dennis's position with the county government, where he lived, and just about every other detail of his life except his name. That's a hell of a way to keep a secret. Officers rolled in, and Dennis found himself on Good Morning America with Regis and Kathy Lee. People are talking, unsolved mysteries, and an HBO special. His story also appeared in the book Night Siege, about the Hudson Valley sightings, and he was fortunate enough to spend a few days with its famous author, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer who had been an advisor on Project Blue Book, the U.S. Air Force project to study UFOs. Over the years, he continued to receive requests for interviews, but he had no further interest in talking about his experience until just before my letter arrived. Timing is everything, I always say, and I was delighted that we would be able to film this celebrity witness and his important case. Sarah, Felix, and I arrived at Dennis's house on the hot day of June 29, 2012. It was exciting to see the actual location of a sighting I had seen recreated on the Unsolved Mystery shows decades earlier. The house and roadway they used in the show were not the actual house and overpass on Route 84. I had driven on that section of road countless times, and I knew every time I passed by there in the future, I would picture that massive triangular craft hovering just several yards over the stopped traffic. While all the cameras and lights were being set up, Dennis and I discussed more details of the sighting and what followed, while enjoying some of the delicious brownies his wife Kathy had kindly made for us. He said that in order to help his kids cope with the experience, he had them all draw what they had seen. I was anxious to see those drawings, but he said he had lent them to another author who never returned them. Dennis also told me that a couple of weeks after the sighting, his entire family suddenly woke up at 2 a.m. for some unknown reason— they were all wide awake and ended up gathering in the kitchen to discuss the UFO. Once the cameras were rolling, we went through the formal interview. Apart from the actual sighting, we discussed how it influenced or changed his life. 
His answers were thoughtful and direct. The appearance of that craft led him to question many things, become more open to life's mysteries, and try to think out of the box. He gravitated to a more spiritual way of life in an effort to reach a greater understanding about the nature of things. When I asked if he thought something else unusual would happen in the future, he said he wasn't sure, but he wanted it to happen again. On the question of life in the universe, Dennis feels that it's arrogant to maintain that we are the only planet with life. It was truly a pleasure speaking with him, and in addition to his kind nature and sense of humor, Dennis possesses a rare quality I would characterize as a special type of wisdom. Whether or not he would have gained that wisdom had he not had that amazing experience in 1983 is a debatable point, but the fact remains that he saw what he saw, and his life changed for the better. Unfortunately, our pleasant conversation came to an end when it was time for the outdoor filming. It was 97 degrees with high humidity and decidedly unpleasant, but we all kept our senses of humor and trusted that Felix's wizardry with the cameras would all make it worth the dehydration factor. And I have to admit, despite the heat, it did give me a chill to stand exactly where Dennis stood almost 30 years earlier and witnessed something almost beyond description. I was also a bit jealous that I never had a close encounter like that. All in all, it was a privilege to interview Dennis at his home and experience this incredible case vicariously through his vivid recollections. Will Dennis Sant ever encounter something like this again? Maybe, maybe not. But if he does, regardless of the nature of the event, he will most likely learn from it and turn it into a positive experience. And what more could we ask from life than that? This is the end of today's excerpt. Well, that's our podcast for this week, the very first podcast of 2024. So if you can, please share, follow, like, subscribe, and leave a positive review, which helps us with the logarithms, and keep spreading the good word about UFO Tucker. And until next time, this is Michael Ryan. Keep watching the skies. You have been listening to the UFO Talker. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, you can email us at ufotalker at bell.net or visit our website at ufotalker.ca. You can support UFO Talker by using the Buy Me a Coffee app with links on our website and in the show notes. We appreciate every listener. Thank you for your support. This has been a Michael Ryan production. 30, that's a wrap.